welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from thankfulhomemaker.com, and I'm so thankful to be with you today. I'm so grateful that you have chose to be here with me, and I pray we can be an encouragement to one another in our walk with the Lord. We are continuing to work through the Sermon on the Mount, and you can find all the past episodes, and there are quite a few of them now, at the link in the show notes, or if you're at my blog at thankfulhomemaker.com, you can just hover over that Christian Living Menu tab, and the Sermon on the Mount series will appear in the drop-down menu. If you click there, it will take you to all the episodes. So our passage today has terms that are familiar to Christians and non-Christians. We've all heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth or turn the other cheek. And this is the fifth of Jesus's statements that we're working through here that you heard that it was said, but I say to you, where Jesus is calling for our righteousness of those of us in Christ to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we are on episode 120 today, And it's titled, Have We No Rights? And we're working through verses from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. So before we get into the text today, I want to open us up with some thoughts from James Montgomery Boyce from his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, We live in a day when most people are intensely conscious of their rights. In such a climate, it's not unusual for a believer in Jesus Christ to be asking, what are my rights as a Christian? Do I have a right to success or wealth, to a home or a family, to a good name, to be respected? He continues, he says, perhaps you've asked these questions also or others like them. Do, we have, do you have rights? The verses from the Sermon on the Mount to which we now come answer these questions directly. And they say, striking as it may seem, that there are no rights for Christians. And I'm going to read the text. I'm going to read it again later, but I'm going to read it in the context of his quote as we continue it. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42 reads, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, Let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And James Montgomery Boyce continues. He says, these verses teach that a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ has no right to retaliation, no right to things, no right to his own time, and no right to his money. In other words, he holds all his possessions in trust from the Lord, and he is obliged to use them as Jesus did to help others. So I based today's title of this episode after this little booklet by Mabel Williamson, and she was a missionary with the China Inland Mission. And I want to start off our time with a brief entry from her booklet, which was titled, Have We No Right?, And it's free to read online. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it shares stories of how we're called as believers to give up our rights. So let me share her. This was one of her opening stories in the booklet. 
She said, a group of half a dozen missionaries were gathered for prayer in a simply furnished living room of a mission house in China. For a few minutes, one of the group spoke to us out of his heart, and I shall never forget the gist of what he said. You know, he began, there's a great deal of difference between eating bitterness, which eating bitterness is a Chinese idiom for suffering hardship, and eating loss, which is a Chinese idiom for suffering the infringement of one's rights. Eating bitterness is easy enough to go out with the preaching band, walk 20 or 30 miles to the place where you are to work, help set up the tent, placard the town with posters, and spend several weeks in strenuous campaign of meetings and visitation. Why, that's a thrill. Your bed may be made of a couple planks laid on sawhorses, and you may have to eat boiled rice, greens, and bean curd three times a day, but that's just the beauty of it. Why, it's good for anyone to go back to the simple life. A little healthy, quote, bitterness is good for anybody. And then he says, when I came to China, he continued, I was all ready to, quote, eat bitterness and like it. That hasn't troubled me particularly. It takes a little while to get your palate and your digestion used to Chinese food, of course, but that was no harder than I had expected. Another thing, however, and he paused significantly, another thing that I had never thought about came up to make trouble. I had to, quote, eat loss. I found that I could not, couldn't stand up for my rights, that I couldn't even have any rights. I found that I had to give them up, everyone, and that was the hardest thing of all. So she continues there. She says, that missionary was right. On the mission field, it is not the enduring of the hardships, the lack of comforts, and the roughness of the life that make the missionary cringe and falter. It is something far less romantic and far more real. It is something that will hit you right down where you live. The missionary has to give up having his own way. He has to give up having any rights. He has, in the words of Jesus, to, quote, deny himself. He just has to give up himself. Paul knew all about this. If you do not believe it, look at 1 Corinthians 9. Have we no right to eat and to drink, he asks? Have we not a right to forbear working? Nevertheless, he goes on, we did not use this right. Though I was free from all men, I brought myself under bondage to all that I may gain them more. And she references there 1 Corinthians 9 verses 4, 6, 12, and 19. I'll put all that in the show notes. And she continues, Paul, as a missionary, willingly gave up his rights for the sake of the gospel. Are we ready to do the same? So I just really appreciated how that story set the tone for our time and our study today. And I am really looking forward to walking through this text with you. This was a convicting text for me to study through. They're all convicting. This was extremely convicting. And I do pray that you will get the time to sit with this text on your own after our time together. If nothing else, at least read through it, meditate on it, think deeply on it, and pray through the text if that's all you get the time to do. So our first verse to walk through in our passage today is Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus is again, he's taken us back to the Old Testament where we find you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We see that in passages in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. And this passage represents what has come to be known as the oldest law in the world. It's the lex talionis. Lex means law and talionis means retaliation. And if you notice, the title for this section in your Bible is titled Retaliation. So this law might seem harsh, 
but it was very merciful in its legislation because it only allowed the one who was wronged, they had to limit their vengeance. If I'm just going to state this. This isn't the case necessarily, but if they took your eye, you could only take their eye. You couldn't take more. You couldn't take their ear too, all right? So our laws today have roots in the lex talionis. And in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 to 21, it was given to the judges of Israel as they sought to settle disputes. People weren't to just go and seek out justice on their own, but they were to go through the proper channels of the court. So one purpose of the lex talionis was to prevent excessive punishment based on personal vengeance and angry retaliation. So another purpose of an eye for an eye was to also curtail further crime, as we're going to see in these passages. Um, I want to read to us, just so we get the context, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 to 21. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. The eye for an eye idea here, the lex talionis there. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So Jesus is addressing here in our text today, in our Matthew 5 verses, how the rabbinic traditions of the day have taken advantage of or how they perverted the lex talionis. The law didn't allow someone to take the law in their own hands. But the the tradition had allowed each man to become his own judge and jury. So civil justice in the time of the scribes and the Pharisees, it had turned into personal vengeance. And John MacArthur stated on this, he said, instead of properly acknowledging the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as a limit on punishment, they, and the they there is referring to the scribes and Pharisees, they conveniently used it as a mandate for vengeance as it has often been wrongly viewed throughout history. What God gave as a restriction on civil courts, Jewish tradition had turned into personal license for revenge. In still another way, the self-centered and self-asserted righteousness, quote, righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, had made a shambles of God's holy law. Okay, so basically, they were just using this law to justify their personal vendettas. They taught that the lex talionis didn't just apply to the state, but it applied to personal vendettas, and they used this law to justify them. The real fulfillment of this law would be found in the one who did not seek revenge for a wrong against him. It was meant to restrain retaliation. Jesus knows all about human nature, right? He knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. When we're wronged, we don't want to just get even We want them to suffer more. We want to hit harder than we were hit. Little kids always come to mind here as a a perfect picture and example of this. They have a toy taken from them, from a sibling or a friend or whatever, and instead of just taking the toy back, how often do they push or hit or shove them? um, And, you know, we do the same thing. And maybe not by physically hitting someone, but our words can cut deep and hurt. Our tongue is quite a weapon. 
someone wrongs us and we lash back, maybe not directly to them. Maybe we do it underline in a malicious kind of undertone sort of way that we're cutting them down or saying something. But we also do it with gossip or slander. Um, just in, in other ways, we can find ourselves doing this. And let me bring it inward. Maybe we don't do it outwardly when it happens, but what's going on in our hearts and our minds and our thoughts at that time? Are we harboring anger or bitterness or bad thoughts or resentment towards them? Sinclair Ferguson said, he said, behind this lies the principle by which every Christian is called to live. Do not make your rights the basis for your relationships with others. Be prepared to take a lowly position as a humble servant. Be prepared to pay the price of imitating the example of Jesus, end quote there of his. So this brings us again to our Pharisees. They read the letter of the law, but they reversed the intent of the law and they missed the spirit of the law. Jesus here isn't giving us a new law, but he's emphasizing the spirit of the law. We're reminded always that we cannot please God through works of the law. And the whole thought here is to bring us to grace. We have to be brought back to the beginning. And it begins with us understanding who we are in Christ and to really understand what it means to be poor in spirit, to be spiritually bankrupt, that there was nothing worthy in me. God has saved me solely as an act of his grace and mercy. I deserved condemnation and judgment and hell. And he's given me the free gift of eternal life with him. He's adopted me as his daughter, and it's all a gift of his grace. When I'm reminded of who I am in Christ and everything that entails, right? When we've truly been born again by repenting of our sins and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are now God's children. And if you're listening into me today and you aren't sure or you're not understanding the gospel or what it means to be in Christ, please, I'm going to link to an article that I have that walks you through the gospel and what it means to be saved or to be born again. And I'm always here to message if you have any questions. So instead, of, instead I should say, of standing on our rights, we need to be reminded where the sin of others abounds, grace abounds much more. And it's also a reminder that everything we have comes from the Lord. It is his, and we should desire to use it all for his glory. As we move on here from verse 38, I heard one preacher state it this way. He said that the only right we have is the right to forgive, that we possess the right along with the duty to forgive. He stated that to completely forgive means the pain stops and we stop replaying the situation over and over in our mind. If we truly forgive and we see them as God sees them, we drop the, the quote, right of retaliation and we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. I've been forgiven much. I can forgive much. I have a whole podcast on choosing forgiveness that I'll link to in the show notes. But our next passage is verse 39. Just A, I'm going to deal with the first part of it. And it reads, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So as we dig in here, we're always reminded that context is key. This passage has been used out of context to justify pacifism. That Jesus is saying here that we're not to resist Jesus, Jesus, how do I say that? Jesus is saying that we're, they're using it to say that Jesus, my words are like jumbled here. Let me come back to that. They're using this passage to say that Jesus is saying that we're not to resist evil in any way. 
But that's not what Jesus is saying here, right? He's expositing for us the real meaning of the law, and he lays it out for us as we walk through this passage here. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, visit there if you need to. It lays out for us that the state is to punish wrongdoers, and they have to do this with force. The Bible does not contradict itself. I'm thinking in my mind, too. I feel like it's in 1 Peter chapter 2. Maybe there's some verses there, too. Um, One commentator stated, he said, the problem comes when we isolate and absolutize Jesus's words without giving due attention to the context, the flow of the argument, and the social implications of the time. So Jesus walks us through what he means in four one-sentence illustrations as we continue to walk through this passage of what it means to not resist the evil one. And R. Kent Hughes tells us, he says, each of the illustrations is culturally specific, but they give us general principles for today's living. The principles are not for everyone, but only for those who follow Christ. So our first illustration is verse 39b. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So Jesus mentions here the right cheek. And most commentators, as I study through this, stated that it, it then would have meant a I actually had to like picture stand in front of somebody and doing this so I could visualize this, that it would have meant a backhanded slap since most people were right-handed. So if I'm going to hit someone on the right cheek, it's going to come from my backhand. The rabbinic law stated that to hit someone with the back of your hand, that was twice as insulting as hitting him with the flat of your hand. It stood for utter disdain. You were scorned and considered a nothing if someone did this to you. So imagine the insult here. This is still considered a massive offense in the Near East. So, and it was an insult in which you could take someone to court in that time. So think here in our day, this would be similar to defamation of character. Sinclair Ferguson stated on this passage, he said, Jesus is reminding his disciples in this figurative way that to stand on their rights and to seek to have their dignity reaffirmed is not the Christian response to any insult Let the insults come, says Jesus, and show by your response that you feel no need for retaliation because you have your reputation secure with God as his child. Let your response to the insult be gracious, just as your father's response to your insult of sin against him has been so gracious. He continues, he says, will anyone be one for the kingdom by your retaliation, by your standing on your rights? How could they be, he says, the king in the kingdom is the one who did not retaliate. I want to share a story that Martin Lloyd-Jones shared from his book and the studies on the Sermon on the Mount. It's about Hudson Taylor, the missionary to China. Hudson Taylor was standing on a riverbank in China one evening, and he hailed a boat to take him across the river. Just as the boat was drawing near, a wealthy Chinese man came along who did not recognize Hudson Taylor as a foreigner because he had he had taken on her effective native, native dress. So when the boat came, he struck and thrust Hudson Taylor aside with such force that Hudson Taylor fell into the mud. And Hudson Taylor, however, he said nothing. But the boatman refused to take his fellow countrymen, saying, No, that foreigner called me, and the boat is his, and he must go first. The Chinese traveler was amazed and astounded when he realized that he had blundered. Hudson Taylor did not complain, but he invited the man into the boat with him and began to tell him what it was in him that made him behave in such a manner. As a foreigner, 
he could have resented such treatment, but he did not do so because of the grace of God in him. A conversation followed which Hudson Taylor had every reason to believe made a deep impression upon that man and upon his soul. And Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on this story. He said, Our Lord desires to produce in us a spirit that does not take offense easily at such things, that does not seek immediate means of retaliation. He wants us to reach a state in which we are indifferent to self and self-esteem. I just think about that, that, that quote that is so antithetical to our culture that we live in today, which is all about self and our rights and self-esteem. And we get caught up in that as believers too easily. And I know that because I know, I know that for myself. The Apostle Paul had some very, un, very unkind things said about him by the Corinthians. And here was his response. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. The Apostle Paul had his eyes so focused on Christ and who he was in Christ and his purpose and his mission that he didn't let insults and criticisms bother him or thwart his mission. He was steadfast, right? He was staying on that narrow path. And again, this is not indifference to law and order, right? But because I'm what I'm saying here, and I feel like I always have to state this, if this is a, an issue of abuse or you are being hurt, you need to get out and get to safety and get help through the proper authorities. Seek help from your church too. You know, if you need, if you're in a situation like that, you need to go to the police, but also you need to let your church family know, your pastor and your elders, what's going on so they can be there to help you walk through that too. So as I state that, I just want to say that again, this is not indifference to law and order, but the concern is our spirit and attitude towards those who are insulting us. Every passage we walk through in the Sermon on the Mount comes back to our first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If we don't grasp what that truly means, nothing in the rest of the sermon will make any sense. If you are just joining me the first time here today for this, I encourage you to go back and I will link that first episode in the show notes so you can take a listen to that. When we come back to reminding ourselves of the gospel and who we are in Christ, we are not going to be those people who assert their rights. We're going to mourn over our sin. We're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are not going to go out and demand our rights because as we're reminded of the gospel, we're reminded how far far we fall short of God's glory. We're not going to live with a sense of entitlement. We're going to take up our cross and follow Jesus, thinking there, Mark 8.34. We say no to our individual rights and existence, right? They don't determine who we are anymore. In Christ, we've been crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, we've been crucified to what we think are our rights or what we're entitled to. The words of one commentator sum up this passage pretty well. Lovingly absorb the insult. Let me state that again. Lovingly absorb the insult. So as we move down the text, how do we respond when someone rips off our tunic? (laughs) Verse 40 states, and if someone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So before we dig into this passage, I want us to know that this passage is not avoiding what is right and just by the law. We have examples in scripture of Jesus and Paul appealing to the law. Let me set this foundation before we move forward here. Jesus in John 18, 23 stated, and this is Jesus answering. He's speaking to the high priest. He said, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? 
And the Apostle Paul appealed to his legal rights as a Roman citizen when he was wrongly thrown in prison in Acts 16.37. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they not throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. So Paul was reminding the magistrates that they were not upholding the law that they vowed to carry out. He didn't make a scene about being thrown in prison. Jesus didn't lash out and get angry. And please hear me as we're working through this text again. There are laws and protection in place. I want to state this again so it's clear for those who are abused. So please, again, if you're in a situation like that, get help, get to safety, and from your church family, we can appeal to the law if we are being wrongly accused. God appoints kings and governors. All law comes from God. Go back to Romans 13. In Bible times, you could sue someone for the clothes off their back, literally, if they had no other money or possessions, but you couldn't have their tunic for a full 24-hour day um, possession. You had to give it back to them each evening. This This was a garment that was indispensable to them. They needed it to sleep at night to keep warm. And then the point Jesus is making here is when as his followers, when we meet persecution and opposition, that we should be willing to give quote, give our outer garment, even though it couldn't be taken from us legally, so we would meet our debt required and not offend our adversary. And this was this was super helpful from John MacArthur. He said, the attitude of a kingdom citizen, one who is truly righteous, should be willingness to, willingness to surrender even one's coat, his extremely valuable outer garment, rather than cause offense or hard feelings with an adversary. The court could not demand the coat, but it could be voluntarily given to meet the required debt. And that is precisely what Jesus says we should be willing to do. Offer more for any wrong to show our regret and to show we are not bitter or resentful to the one who has sued us. So in the example that we had of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they weren't insisting on their personal rights or they are concerned about the insults towards them. So as believers, friend, we must be ready and prepared to respond in a Christ-like way for whatever may come about to us personally. But we are able to protest when there is injustice. There's a right way to do that. Romans 12, 17, Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21 comes to mind. I do want to read this text. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, that was Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. And Stephen Cole, um, just a preacher I appreciate, he comments on the meaning of Romans 12, 20. He says, by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his heads, on his head, heads, (laughs) on his head. It would be that if you do good towards your enemy, he says, and he doesn't repent, you can rest assured that God will one day redress your wrong by bringing severe judgment on your enemy. But your motive, this is key, your motive in doing the good deeds is not to increase your enemy's judgment, but prayerfully to bring him to repentance. That is the hope, right? I'm I'm ad-libbing here a little, but if he doesn't repent, you can know that God will ultimately bring him to justice. We want the other person. We want to point them to Christ. We want them to honor God in their response, and we want to honor God in our response there. Our response is so important, right? And it is also important when we remember 
that everything we have is a gift from the Lord, even that tunic, right? In every way possible. And as I'm stating this, I get it, friend. It is not easy. This is an area the Lord is still continuing to challenge and grow me in, but we should desire to honor him with our lives and our possessions and how we respond to injustices brought against us. Our last two verses in Matthew read, and I'm reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 41 to 42. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So going the extra mile has origins from the Persians, but we are familiar with it most from the Roman times because most of us have heard this. So if a Roman soldier or official asked someone to carry something for a mile and the Jews were often the ones chosen for this task, they had to do it. In that time, it was, it was a form of religious persecution. It's been said, I, I don't know the truth in this, I read this in a few places, that this is why Simon of Cyrene was chosen to carry Jesus's cross because he was known to love Jesus. So Jesus is telling his believers that as we come under any form of persecution, we have two choices. We can do it begrudgingly or cheerfully. We could do it cheerfully, right? And go above and beyond what duty calls. This verse makes me think in our time when others ask of our time, do we give it freely? Again, being reminded it is all from the Lord. Every aspect of my day is appointed by the Lord for my good and his Lord in his glory. So if someone calls or needs me for something or to run an errand or whatever, whatever it might be, and I'm in the midst of a extremely long to-do list, right? Where's my heart and attitude in that? Am I ready to do more than what is asked or just the bare minimum? Am I doing it? Again, I have a choice here. Am, am I doing it cheerfully or am I doing it sinfully and complaining about it the whole time and even afterward? Again, not outwardly, but maybe inwardly. I think at times in simple things even that we deal with, like I'm heading into the kitchen. Do I, to, can I just ask my husband in that moment, can I get him anything? Or if there's anything I can do for him today? And when I'm asking those questions without hoping that he's going to say, no, I don't need anything, but really ready to give of my time and to serve him if he does. Or when a friend is having a rough day to make the time to maybe go see them or drop something off just a little token, a gift, a card, whatever, to give them more than just a text message or a phone call, but give them the gift of my time. F.B. Meyer stated from his devotional, The Christian Extra, he said, let us not be stingy in our dealings with men. There are certain things that must be done, but let us go beyond the must and do our duty with a smile and with generous kindness. It is not enough to pay our servants or employees. Let us be thankful for their service. It is not enough to pay our debts. Let us give the word also of appreciation. It is not enough to simply do the work for which our employer compensates us. Let us do it with cheerfulness and eagerness, willing to finish a piece of necessary service even at a cost to ourselves. As the followers of Christ, we are to be... I love this ending, so just, just listen to this. As the followers of Christ, we are to be stars bearing our light on the vault of night, flowers shedding fragrance on the world, fountains rising in the arid wastes, always giving love and helpful ministry to this thankless and needy world. And as we break and distribute our barley loaves and fishes, our hands will become filled again, and with the measure we meet, it shall be measured to us again. So I will put that whole quote in the show notes so you have that. So now we're moving into our last verse here, 42, and our, it's about our possessions. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
So we are a possessive people and we don't like too easily to give up what is ours or what we perceive as ours, right? And we forget too often, at least I do, speaking for myself, raising my hand here, that I am merely a steward of everything I have. Everything I have is a gift from the Lord to be used from his glory, to further his kingdom, and everything, all these quote earthly quote treasures, they're all temporal, right? So we do have a legal right to keep what is ours. I get that. Stealing is against the law. And we are to be also good stewards of what we do have from the Lord. I want to take good care of it. John MacArthur helps us a little bit in this passage. He says, when someone asks to borrow something from us, we should not turn away from him. In other words, we should give him what he wants. The implication is that the person who asks has a genuine need. We are not required to respond to every foolish, selfish request made of us. We need wisdom here. I'm kind of ad-libbing and throwing a little thing in there. We need wisdom, right? Sometimes to give a person what he wants but does not need is a disservice, doing him more harm than good. And he continues. He says, also implied is the principle that we should offer to give what is needed as soon as we know of the need, whether or not we are asked for help. Jesus is not speaking of begrudging, acquiescence to a plea for help, but willing, generous, generous, and loving desire to help others. He's speaking of generosity that genuinely wants to meet the other person's need, not tokenism that does a good deed to buy off one's own conscience. So let me share a few verses to keep in mind as we're thinking about this. Psalm 112.5 says, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who, conduct, who conducts his affairs with justice. Luke 6.35 states, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. In 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There are lots of scriptures to keep in mind, and we always want to pray for wisdom and measure the need against the whole of scripture. But as Susan Heck shared in her study, she said, when someone has a genuine need, you meet it. If they need food, you give it to them. If they need to borrow your car, you let them. These are not your things anyway. Everything you have is because God gave it to you. It all belongs to him. So as we're coming to a close, are you saying to yourself, yikes, Marcy, like, do we have no rights? Well, no, we don't, okay? <laughs> Although we live in a world that demands its rights as those in Christ, we give up our rights when we came to know him. Or more like more to state when he when he came to know us, when he called us as his own. Susan Heck broke her text down into four areas in study on her Sermon on the Mount. And I really appreciate how she did this and how and how she brought it to a close, how she summarized these four points. This is a really great study to pick up and do on your own or with a group. I'll link to it in the show notes. I want to list the four areas, and then I want to break down and utilize a little help from her on those four points to ponder. So she states the four points, and again, these are not the only ones. These are just the ones from our text today. But we give up the right to our person, our possessions, our plans, and our provisions when we came to know Jesus. Let me break these down then on our person, verse 39. So some thoughts to ponder here. When someone insults you, do you insult back? When you've been wronged, do you look for ways to bless? Our possessions, verse 40, are we obedient to the law? Are we sue-happy people or are we vengeful people? Would we give up our possessions for the sake of the gospel? 
What about our plans? Verse 41 there. What is your attitude when others need help and the gift of time? Is your attitude that of a servant or one of a complainer? Do you get irritated or angry? We dealt with anger a couple episodes episodes ago in our, our walk here through on the Sermon on the Mount. I'll try to remember to link to that too, but you can find it. Our provisions, and that's our last one here, verse 42. We, we live in a world of abundance, right? When someone needs to borrow something of, your, of yours, what's your response? What's your attitude? What if it's something of value? How can we be looking for ways to give? And really the end thought here is, are we willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel? Are we reminded we've been giving what we don't deserve as believers? Again, we deserved hell and we've been gifted by the grace and mercy of God, the gift of eternal life with him in heaven. I'm thankful that Jesus wasn't fair with me. So the power at work to live in this way is in us because of Christ in us. 2 Corinthians 12.10 tells us, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And George Mueller, his quote here is a great one to end with. He says, There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller and his opinions, his preferences, and his tastes, and his will. I died to the world, to its approval and censure. I died to the approval or the blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. My friend, may this be us. May this be the thought in the forefront of our minds, right? That we would be workmen approved unto God. And nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Jesus truly is enough always. I'm so grateful for your time today. And all the quotes and verses and resources will all be at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com. Always, if I miss something and you can't find it, shoot me a note, message me, email me. I'll be back with you next month as we look at what it looks like to love our enemies as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll finish up actually Matthew chapter 5. We'll be moving on to 6 in May then. But uh, Matthew chapter 5 will be working through next verses 43 to 48. I am so very grateful for you, my friend. And I do pray that you have a very blessed week. Mm -hmm.